As I confess, I'm feeling a little under the weather this morning, not because I'm sick, but I don't feel like this gal uh, on the, the group of friends. You know, have you ever been maybe with this group or a group like that? You're with somebody who has a lot of enthusiasm. They have a lot of what we might call zeal. And sometimes they're obnoxious. You know, you might be down, they're up, maybe like her friends, I don't know. Uh, zeal or extroverts, maybe. There's a number of ways we could describe this. But people who maybe are out there just a little bit can make us feel uncomfortable depending on the setting and what's going on. But zeal or enthusiasm or determination or some, some qualities along that line are in fact necessary for you and me if Christ's life is being formed in us significantly. And let me tell you one of the reasons why. It's, it's a story from John 2, and hopefully you're familiar with it. But in John 2, Jesus and the disciples are going up to Jerusalem and to the Temple Mount because it's Passover. And so guys, this, is, this would be a wild scene. So Jews from all over Israel are going not only to Jerusalem, but to that singular space on the Temple Mount. And not only that, but Jews from around the Roman world are too. You'd be elbow to elbow up on that Temple Mount. And it would be wild and crazy and loud like it is sometimes here before after service. Everybody is talking. But you'd also have the sound of the animals that are up there being sold for the sacrifices. You'd have the smell of the animals, the live ones, and the ones that are on the altar. Sensory, it'd be overwhelming. It'd be an overload. And into that, as Passover's approaching, you're on the holy precinct, the holy mount, and Jesus walks in with this whip, and he starts turning over tables, and he throws money, money changers' boxes down, and he drives people out of the temple, and he says this, take these things away, don't make my father's house a house of trade. Now imagine you're one of the disciples, and the rabbi starts turning tables over. You know, I might be thinking, what are you doing? I'm a little embarrassed here. You're making a scene, Jesus. You know, let's tone it down. We wouldn't say that to him, right? But we might think that. What are you doing? But you remember later what it says the disciples remember, John 2.17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. That's from Psalm 69. It's a messianic psalm. Jesus had this zeal that would have made other people uncomfortable. And it moved him and it motivated him in ways that you and I would normally consider inappropriate. You know, in the culture and the time we live in, there's this uh, element of culture that's considered a virtue that's nowhere to be found in the Bible. And it's, I, I just call it nice. If you're a nice person and I'm a nice person, life is nice, God is nice, you're nice, I'm nice, life is nice. And usually what that means is we don't offend anyone. Everybody's okay with us because we're a nice person. We don't give offense. But the, the problem with that is you can't get that out of the New Testament. You, can't, you cannot get that out of God's prophets in the Old Testament. You can't get that from Jesus. You can't get it from the disciples or the apostles because God and God's people are always turning things up in the world. Christians have to, if we are being formed in the image of Christ, Christ here is motivated by a zeal for his father, his father's house, his father's things. And if the life of Christ is being engendered in you and me, there are times in which 
if we aren't zealous, if we aren't making other people uncomfortable, if we don't have an attitude of determination, I'm going to do what I've got to do, I'm going to get what I've got to get, it's because Christ's life is not adequately being formed in us. This isn't all the time, of course. Jesus' whole life didn't look like this moment. But if that isn't part of our life at some point, it's probably because we are shoving down the life of Christ within. We're swallowing hard and saying, I'm not going to be that disruptive. I'm not going to push myself that far that way. We're in the 36th lesson in the message, or the series in the message, uh, Heroes and Villains. And we're looking at a guy, frankly, whose persona is fairly quiet, Elisha. And he's following this guy whose persona is anything but quiet, Elijah. And you remember, just as a reminder, when we go through the lesson, there's things that we want to come away with. We'll talk about those in just a moment. But we want to be careful that we're not turning God's work in our life into simply a form of religion or moralism. So we say as Christians, when we've trusted in Christ that He gives us His Spirit, and then His work in us becomes to form Christ in us. Christ in us and us in Christ. That is the life of a Christian. And so for us, when we look at these Old Testament and this part of the series at least, saints, we're looking at what does faithfulness in Christ's image, what does that look like in the lives of those folks who've gone before us? So as we see that in them, that's what we want to emulate because Christ's life in them is Christ's life in us. And we get, we get elements of what that faithfulness looks like in different lives, in different times, different circumstances through these biographies, through their stories. But this isn't about developing some religious look, right? Guys, the world is full of religious people that are going to hell. And the outward appearance, whether it's nice or whatever that looks like, is meaningless. We've got Christ's life or we don't. If we have it, God's work is to envelop us in more of the life of Christ. So that's what we want to go away with. We see elements of that in the lives of God's folks. So review real quickly. We looked at Elijah last week. Crazy, crazy prophet, right? Withholds the rain for three and a half years. Calls fire down from heaven. Calls for the rain again. He's got quite a life. And you got this guy, Elisha, following him. Very, very different sort of guy. Very, very different sort of ministry. Big picture sort of in walking through the Bible or Bible history. We've got Abraham around 2000 B.C. God calls him. Begun, begins the work in Israel through Abraham. David is a thousand years later, about a thousand B.C. Solomon's reign ends at 970 B.C. The Elijah and Elisha numbers are a little, little fuzzy. or not sure exactly, but about 870 to 850 for Elijah and somewhere around for Elisha 850 to about 800 uh, B.C. So that puts them in the timeline. The, the two big things that we want to go away with this morning are these. Sometimes faithfulness, think of John 2 and Jesus in the temple. Sometimes faithfulness in the image of Christ requires zeal. And we'll qualify this two different ways. The first is zeal as determination or passion or fire in the belly or stick to I'm going to do something. I'm going to get something done. It doesn't matter how I appear to others. I'm determined because this is what God's about. And that's the second thing. The zeal is for what God's up to, not necessarily for what I want. It's zeal like Christ for God and God's things. And there's times again in which that should be the norm for us. That's the appropriate response for us because Christ's life is in us. The second thing is this. 
Faithfulness in your life and mine is going to look very different. Very different as you'll see between Elijah and Elisha. We want to avoid the trap of comparison. And that can go two different ways. On one hand, if comparison is what you and I do with each other, if I look at your life or your service or your ministry and I say, man, I am so much better than them, then I may think, I'm done, I'm good. When God may require far more of me than I'm aware, but I say, well, I'm better than you, so I'm okay. I've compared my ministry, I'm more fruitful, whatever. If I look at you and I say, man, I'll never be able to do what they do, I, I can't even aspire to that, then I may become discouraged and just say, I'll just check out. It's a losing formula for you and I to compare ourselves to others. It, one way or another, it will trip you up. So we want to avoid that as well. So those are the two biggies this morning. And so with that, if you've got a, if you use a pew Bible, this is page 301. We're going to jump in at 1 Kings 19, verse 19 through 21. <clears throat> Excuse me, and to give perspective. So at the end of Elijah's mostly public ministry, he was at Carmel. He's got that great confrontation with the prophets of Baal. The fire of heaven comes down. The rain follows. You remember, it's the high watermark of his ministry. But then Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab, wicked Jezebel, wicked Ahab, says, hey buddy, I'm going to kill you before tomorrow runs out. And, and the guy of, of rain and storm and fire is afraid and he runs south, runs through Israel, runs through Judah, all the way down to Horeb or Mount Sinai, where basically he pours out his complaint to God. And so God gives him three tasks. We, we mentioned last week, two of which he never does. And the third, he does half-heartedly, and that's where we'll pick up now. So he, Elijah, departs from Sinai, and he goes up and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the 12. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak on him. And he left the oxen, that is Elisha, and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I'll follow you. So Elijah says back, go back again. What have I done to you? It's sort of the dis dismissive response. By the way, the Hebrew here is a little convoluted, but I think the ESV, I think this is a good translation, that Elijah is sort of putting Elisha off. It's like, what do I care about you? Go do whatever you want. He returned, Elisha does, from following him, and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them, boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen, gave it to the people. They ate. He rose, went after Elijah, and assisted him. Now God told, remember that's one of the three things at Sinai God told Elijah to do, anoint Elisha as your successor. He's your replacement. And what you find is he never does. This is the closest he comes in Scripture to doing what God said about Elisha. He never anoints him. You remember, an anointing was, a, was at least a semi-formal thing. It's sometimes done in secret to avoid trouble or harm to people. But it was a, a somewhat at least formal thing where someone poured the oil on representing God has set aside this person for this task. Or God is giving this person this responsibility. Elijah never does it. But he, he half-heartedly throws his cape on Elisha and then says, I don't care about you. Go do whatever you want. And this is the thing. Elisha knows something at this point. One, he knows who Elijah is. And two, he already apparently has some sense that God is calling him. 
So when Elijah gives this half-hearted response, Elisha is not put off. And this is important. Elijah's saying, go do whatever you want. And Elisha's like, no way. Because I know I'm supposed to go with you. So here's the quieter guy, and here's sort of the rough, burly guy. And the rough, burly guy says, I don't care what you do. But Elisha is not put off. When he goes back and, and kills those oxen and sacrifices them, he's putting his past away, isn't he? Call it burn the ships, burn the bridge. Full commitment. Kisses his parents. He puts the past behind and nothing is going to stop him from following Elijah. That's a big deal. Elijah's famous. Elisha is not. And he's like, well, I don't care what you do. And Elisha's like, nope, I know who you are and I know what I'm supposed to do. I'm putting the past behind me and I'm following hard after you. And that's exactly what he does. Elisha, this quieter personality of a guy and much, much different ministry as you'll see. His ministry starts with this zeal or this determination not to be put off by Elijah. So he goes with him and he says, basically, I'm not going to be denied I know I'm supposed to be with you and that's what I'm going to do. And it doesn't matter if you disrespect me. It doesn't matter if you encourage me in this. I am with you. I'm on your tail. I'm the, I'm the tick and you're the dog and you're not getting rid of me. This is what's going on. Now, this, the text doesn't tell us how long these two guys serve together. Some people think it's five or six years. Some think it's up to ten years. We don't know. But they have these ministry years together. And during those times, we know what Elijah does, though Elisha's name is not even in the stories. So we know after this, when Elisha is with Elijah, we know that Elijah goes and confronts wicked King Ahab at Naboth's vineyard. Elisha would have been with him. Or when Elijah calls fire down on heaven on these groups of soldiers who've come up to tell him to come back to King Ahaziah, Ahab's son, he's, he would be there then too. He's his assistant. He's with him. Wherever Elijah goes, Elisha goes. So they're in these years together. And, as, and Scripture tells us basically nothing about Elisha's relationship during these years. But you get to the end of those years together. This is 2 Kings 2. And basically you've got more of the same dynamic in which if Elisha isn't determined, if he doesn't have a zeal adequate for getting something, He's going to lose out. So this is 2 Kings 2. And this is when, for whatever reason, everybody knows God's going to take Elijah to heaven today. That's where we're at. It says, now the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind. Elijah and Elisha are on their way from Gilgal. I'm just giving you a map for, hopefully this is helpful. Gilgal's not on this map. And there's two different places in Israel that are called Gilgal. One's near Jericho. This one's probably the one up. It would be about where the A is in Canaan, the, second, the fourth letter in the second A there. So he says, from Gilgal, Elijah said to Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. So you're going to come down the mountains to Bethel there, that first stop. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives... He's saying, basically, you can count on what I'm saying. As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take 
away your master from over you? And he said, yes, I know. Keep quiet. So the first thing is, hey, I got to go down here. Why don't you stay here? Elisha's like, nope, no way. I'm following you. Prophet say, hey, you know what's going on today? He's like, yes, I do. Be quiet. We're, we're getting on with this thing. Verse four, Elijah said to Elisha, Elisha, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, count on it. I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho, came down the mountains to Jericho there on the plains. There's a group of prophets at Jericho. They say the same thing. Do you know God's taken Elijah today? He says, yes, I do know. So be quiet. We're getting on with this thing. Verse six. Then Elijah said to him, please stay here for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. So he's coming down from Jericho down to the river itself. He said, can you guess what he said? As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Now, 50 men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they were both standing by the Jordan. So there's an audience there as they get to the banks of the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, struck the water, and the water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. Remember a week ago when we talked about Elijah, it was this point and counterpoint comparison with he and Moses. And you've got another one here as he's winding down. Just as Moses divided the Red Sea and they went through on dry ground, that's what Elijah does here. Just as for Joshua and Israel, when they came into the land, the Jordan was parted. That's what's going on here as well. Now, why does Elijah keep telling Elisha, stay here? If you know, tell me, because I don't know, because the story doesn't tell us. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. But Elijah knows he's going home to heaven that day, and so does Elisha. So what's the payoff for Elisha in saying, you're the dog and I'm the tick, and wherever you go, I'm going. You can't get rid of me. You can't shake me off. What's the payoff? What's in this for Elisha? And you see this here, uh, verse 9. When they crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, what shall I do for you before I'm taken away? This is the payoff right here. Now, I don't know if Elisha knew he would, Elijah would ask him, what do you want? But that's what's going on here. What do you want? This doesn't happen until Elisha's told him, you're not getting rid of me. If he'd stayed behind, this question would not have come up. The invitation to ask Elijah, what can I do for you would never come up. It comes up because he can't get rid of him. This much quieter person who has a very different ministry has a zeal adequate to say, basically, I think it goes like this, you have something I need and you're not getting rid of me because that's what comes up next. So Elijah asks him, what do you want? You've stuck with me. I can't get rid of you. You must want something. What do you want? What can I do for you? And Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. Your prophetic spirit or blessing from God. I want that. I want a double portion of that. So Elijah says, well, you've asked a hard thing. Yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, you won't get this. As they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. 
Now, it's Elisha's perseverance that gets Elijah to say, okay, what do you want? And he gets the opportunity to ask. I want a double portion of your spirit. Now, notice the language here. My father, my father. Elisha says of Elijah, essentially, he's my spiritual father. Remember, I've cut all my ties to the past. I said goodbye to my mom and dad. Cut all my ties with the past. Elijah has become my spiritual father. And what would the eldest son get from a father when the father died? He got a double portion of the inheritance. And that's exactly what Elisha is saying. He's saying, you treat me like your oldest son. Right? He apparently is unmarried, has no children, but spiritually they're connected. And so Elisha is asking something that in a father-son relationship would have been normal and expected. I want a double portion of what you've got to give. Now, I think he says this not because he wants to be impressive, but I think he gets, he knows he's Elijah's replacement. He knows what a status figure and what a powerful figure Elijah's been on the scene. And I think he's saying to himself, if I don't have more of God's spirit and something along the lines of Elijah's spirit and gift, I can't do what I'm supposed to do. Elisha's ministry is much longer than Elijah's. And as we'll see, I think the prayer was answered. The request was answered for a couple of reasons. But he, he's like, I've got to have this. And so he asks, he sticks with them until he gets to make the request. And Elijah says, sort of, this is beyond my ability to tell you I can do it. But if you see me when I'm taken away, you'll get your request. Now, he does seem as it's taken to heaven. And when Elisha turns around, do you remember what he does? He takes up the same cape. He strikes the Jordan. And remember, he's got an audience there. And the Jordan parts for Elisha the exact same way it did for Elijah. And then when you read the account of Elisha through 2 Kings 13, what you'll find is this. There's about twice the number of miracles associated with Elisha than with Elijah. So it looks like he got exactly what he asked for, except that his ministry looks nothing like Elijah's. But I think this was born of desperation and zeal and determination. God's got a call on my life. I'm following Elijah, this powerful figure. I know I don't have what it takes. I need something to be faithful. And so that's why he sticks with him and he gets, God honors that request. Faithfulness in Elijah's service started with a zeal that laid hold of Elijah and later displayed a zeal that refused to let him leave before he could make that request. And I love this. This is not an extrovert, kind of out there kind of a guy as you read through the story. You know, Elijah's the guy that complains to God. Elisha, you don't see anything like that. Very, very different personality types. Now, Faithfulness for you and me sometimes means making other people uncomfortable. It sometimes means we need to be driven. We need to have a sense that I have got to have this thing. Let me give you two examples. One in the Old Testament of failure and one in the New Testament of success. When Elisha's life is winding down in 2 Kings 13, he's sick and he knows he's going to die. And so he calls King Joash of Israel. Now this is Ahab's grandson who's now the king in Israel. He knows he's going to die. And remember, he's a prophet to Israel, to the northern kingdom. So Joash comes in and he says, get a bow and arrow, put the arrow in the bow, 
And with Elisha's hands on his, he shoots an arrow out the eastern window. Now, Elisha tells him these arrows represent God's victory over Israel's enemy, the Syrians. So they shoot one out the window. And Elisha says, now take that bunch of arrows and strike the ground. Now, Joash knows the arrows represent God's victory over Syria. So he takes the bunch of arrows and he hits the ground three times. And Elisha is ticked. He's angry with him. Because Joash lacks the kind of zeal and enthusiasm that should have motivated him. He should have been like a madman, beating the ground with those arrows. Because Elisha tells him, you hit the ground only three times. He said it means you're going to have three victories over Syria, but they're going to be able to come back after you after this. And of course, they do. He wanted Joash to have fire in the belly and to beat the ground so that Syria would no longer be a threat to Israel. And it didn't happen because he lacked the determination, the zeal, and the enthusiasm Elisha expected him to have as the king of Israel. He didn't get something God would have given because he lacked the enthusiasm to ask for it or to pursue it. Now, a very different and thankfully better story. This is in Luke 18. Remember when Jesus and the disciples are going up to another Passover, Jesus' last Passover in Jerusalem, they're going through Jericho, the same place that Elijah went with Elisha. They're going through Jericho. And you remember as he's coming into town, the crowds would form when they realized who this is. This is the prophet. This is the rabbi Jesus from Nazareth. And he's coming here. So as he starts to enter Jericho, there's a crowd and there's the sound and there's the blind guy along the road. And the blind guy says, what's going on? He can't see. He doesn't know. And they say, well, Jesus of Nazareth is coming along. (laughs) So put yourself in this group. So Jesus of Nazareth come along and the blind guy's heard of him and he's heard some of what he's done and he's raised the dead and he's given sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and the lame can walk. Hmm. So what does he do? He yells out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, the people around them are, what do they tell him? Be quiet. Don't make a scene. You're calling attention to us. Don't you know your place? We're just going to be on the sidelines and watch this guy go through. Guys, the difference is the crowd, they don't feel any need. The blind guy feels a need. And so when they say be quiet, what does he do? What would you do? What would I do? Be quiet, Mike. You're making a scene. You're embarrassing yourself. (laughs) I remember watching a dad interact with his son who was totally out there. And I won't tell you the boy's name in case you would figure out who this was. But he says, Junior, stop. You're embarrassing yourself. And it's like the kid's is absolutely not embarrassing himself. He's embarrassing dad. That's what's going on. Well, this guy is not to be put off because that's Jesus. And I know who he is. And I know what he can do. And I need something. So he cries out all the louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And what happens? You know what? The words of Jesus to this guy are almost verbatim. The words of Elijah to Elisha. He calls him forward. He says, what do you want me to do for you? See, he got to ask the question because he wouldn't give up. Because he wouldn't be embarrassed. Because he was determined. And he says, I want to see. Of course. And Jesus says, okay, well, you can have it. You can see. 
Your faith's made you well. Your faith's healed you. We got to be careful that we don't choose nice over Jesus' kind of zeal and determination that you see lived out in the life of Elisha, but also in guys like this blind beggar. Some fire in the belly, some sense of, I've got to have something from God. I know who's got it. I know where I can get it. And I will not be put off. And you've got to buck our own tendency towards embarrassment or shame or that's just, it's implied or whatever, sometimes to get what God wants to give. If you think about this, there are times in which marriages are only held together because one or both of the spouses are saying we simply will not let this thing die. Because there's some determination. Or, you know, parents with kids. I remember a good friend of ours had a brother, older brother who'd just gone off the rails and he's the son of a pastor. And I remember this brother said he... Sometimes we'd get up to use the bathroom or get a glass of water, whatever, middle of the night. And his brother is off sowing his wild oats and his dad is in the living room on his knees at the couch praying for that brother. That was a dad who would not let go. And the brother, of course, ends up returning to the faith and walking with the Lord. But there are times in which you've got to have some fire. You've got to care about what God cares about. You've got to care about God and God's honor and God's things and God's will and you know a lot of us we have a practiced indifference and guys i'm not saying we can always get this right but if we embarrass ourselves let's do so for the right reasons okay let's let's be willing to be out there and if we're embarrassed because we miss it that's okay that's not the end of the world but be willing to put ourselves out there because something god wants is on the line and i'm connected with that and i have jesus kind of zeal jesus life in me his zeal for God and God's things. Sometimes that's exactly what we need. That second point is this. A faithfulness is not a competition. We have an inborn tendency because of our sinful nature to want to compare ourselves to others. Right? All of us know that inside we're broken, we're sinful, we're not all we should be, we're things we shouldn't be. And so one of the carnal ways of dealing with that is to compare myself to you or for you to compare yourself to me. And if you look a little better than me or I look a little better than you, then I feel better about my brokenness, my sin, my uncleanness. But it's always a losing proposition for anyone, but especially for Christians. And it's especially tough as a temptation, this thing of comparison, if you happen to be following in the footsteps of someone who came before you and they were very good at what they did, or they were very loved, or they were very respected, or whatever, and you feel like, man, I'm, I'm coming into this role that I have no hope of measuring up to that person who came before me. So think of Elisha. Elisha's coming in. How is Elisha going to fill Elijah's shoes? And you know what? He's not. He's not, and he shouldn't try. And we shouldn't try when we're coming into a role, whatever it is, we don't try to do what someone else should do. We don't try to do what they would do or how they would do it necessarily. That's the thing, that's the comparison game. What you'll find is this, God will use your unique persona, the spiritual gifts He's given you, the time and the place, the relationships He's given you, the finances He's given you, 
all those tools at His disposal in your life, and frankly, all your weaknesses as well, He'll use all of that to do His will, His way, so He gets the honor and the glory. It's not about us comparing favorably to someone else. And Elisha doesn't compare favorably to Elijah in some ways. When Elijah, well here let me just get on to the next one. Elijah is this prophet of power, right? He controls the weather. He calls fire from heaven. He stands singular against hundreds of the adversary. He calls down kings. Man, he is the guy. And what's Elisha do? You know, at least seven of the 14 miracles associated with Elisha, they're just feeding people or giving them water. Like it's nothing spectacular is what I'm saying. It's not fire. It's not storm. It's not standing against the enemy by the hundreds. It's taking care of widows. It's giving someone a meal. You've got these on your study sheet. Let me give you just some examples. And remember, this is a comparison for uh, for our sake towards Elijah's ministry of power. This is what Elisha's ministry looks like. Second Kings two, uh, two different places. Second Kings two, and then Second Kings three. He provides fresh water to a group of prophets, and then later to an army. They had a water supply, but it wasn't good. And they said, "Man, we love these areas, but we just don't have fresh water." And he says, "Okay, we'll make some fresh water for you." He's just making water for these guys. That's all he's doing. And when the army runs out of water later in a war with Moab, he miraculously provides water for them too. This is not calling the heavens down. There's no fire. He multiplies oil to a widow so she could sell it, pay her debts, and feed her household. That's 2 Kings 4. What did he do? Well, he just paid, he just helped this widow pay her debts. This one little woman in Israel, he helped her pay her debts. It, Again, not fire from heaven. You could do that. I could do that, right? Somebody has a bill to pay. Oh, well, we'll help you. Nothing miraculous about that. He multiplied the oil, but that was just so she could sell it. He made stew that was unsafe, safe. That's 2 Kings 4. And he multiplied bread and grain so a large group of prophets could eat. Again, he's serving them happy meals. This is kind of like Jesus in John 6. You know, where there's all the crowds and the disciples say, well, we've just got a few fish, we've got a few loaves. And he says, that's enough. Well, that's what Elisha does here. He just serves them a meal. Again, giving them some water to drink, giving them a little food to eat, you know, making a little oil, paying a widow's bills. He prays that the eyes of his servant at Dothan, this is 2 Kings 6, are open. Now, this, this doesn't do anything except it lets one guy see what God's doing. So you remember the king of Syria had said, I'm ticked with this Elisha tipping off Israel and so I want to go get him. And so he sends his army down to Dothan and and there's Elisha and his servant and his servants wigged out like, man, what are we going to do? And and Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes so he can see what you're up to. And, and, uh, And the servant now sees that the army of Syria surrounding Dothan are themselves surrounded by a spiritual army that looks like the horses and the chariot that separated Elisha from Elijah back in the day. It's just that this guy gets to see what God's up to. Lord, would you help him see what you're up to? That we're okay. We can trust in you. So different. He is involved in helping an older woman conceive. And when her son dies, he does get on him and he raises him from the dead. 
But that's not what his ministry was typical of. Even that, which was a quiet miracle in the top of a house in a bedroom that nobody else could see. But you've got this very, very different ministry from Elijah. There's no thought that Elisha was anything less than successful though. And Jesus refers to him in the Gospels about going and helping out and about healing. So he got what he asked for. He got a double portion of Elijah's spirit, although in his life it looked entirely different from Elijah's. Our faithfulness in Christ isn't about doing what someone else would do or how they would do it. And listen to what Paul says. This is 2 Corinthians 10. When we're tempted to compare ourselves with others, it's always a losing game. Listen to what Paul said. He's writing to the Corinthian church, and they're a proud church, and that also means they're easily misled. They have leaders in their midst that Paul calls super apostles that are really deceivers. Paul calls them uh, angels of light, just like Satan. And he says, we don't dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, these super leaders, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. They are foolish. This isn't what God's up. God's not in the comparison game. He says, we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to to the area of influence God assigned to us. And isn't that interesting? He says the circle of influence God assigned. You know, when you look in the New Testament, you realize uh, God saves me. God chooses what my spiritual gifts are. God has determined the time I live. God has determined the place I live. God has determined the resources I have. This is really about God and God's work. It's not about what I'm bringing to bear. So I don't need to compare myself to others. If you thought of a carpenter at his workbench, he's got a bunch of tools. And he picks up one tool and uses it for one reason, and he picks up another tool and uses it for another. And the tools, you can see language like this in Isaiah, the axe doesn't boast itself in what it did. The axe is just the axe. Someone's got to pick it up and use it with skill. And you and I are tools. And God picks us up as He sees fit. Paul says here that God determines the sphere of your influence and mine. Does does that strike you? I I was thinking of Billy Graham earlier. Billy Graham was was an unknown. And he was holding these early revivals in Los Angeles. And Hearst, for whatever reason, the, the newspaper magnet said, told his newspaper, get behind this guy. And and Billy Graham overnight goes from this unknown guy to this guy who now is famous around the country, and as you know, for decades, internationally famous as well. Who gave Billy Graham a national and an international ministry? God did that. And Hearst was one of the tools he used to do it. God determines the sphere of your influence. That's that's good, right? Because you have a sphere of influence that I don't and no one else in here has either. God's given the gifts. God's given the call. This is all about God at the end of the day. So we don't compare ourselves to others. Your, your, your life, your marriage, your kids, your, your service, none of that needs to look like somebody else's to be successful and faithful the way God wants you to be. 
And that's the marker at the end of the day. Remember, the only thing you and I give account for before Christ at the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ is, were you faithful with what I gave you? It's not with what I gave someone else. It's not with what someone else was called to do. Did you do what I gave you to do, Junior? Did you use the stuff I gave you to be successful and faithful? And that's the thing. Elisha was successful. Part of that, though, required this fire in the belly and this zeal. One of the things that strikes me um, on this, we need fire in the belly. We need zeal for our marriages, for our Christian walk. We need zeal when it comes to confronting our own sin. Do you guys ever get like, I hate this sin. I hate what it does. I hate it in me. I hate the effect it has on others. That's good. (laughs) That's fire in the belly. That's zeal where we say, Lord, I don't want this. Show me what to do to get out of this. I want your mind on this thing. I want to honor you and your things. We need some fire in the belly. Uh, Look at your study sheet if you would because I want to wind down on this. Guys, the first act of faithfulness, and remember, that's the issue for us. The first act of faithfulness is always the same for anyone. The first act of faithfulness for you or for me is to embrace salvation in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's to recognize that I'm a sinner. I've lived a life at odds with my Maker. And I repent of my independence. And I am glad to see the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, cover my sin And I understand that my goal in life is to faithfully pursue Jesus. Do you know you cannot please God until you've done that? You're just a rebel living life on your own terms. If you're religious and you go to church every Sunday and you pray and you do acts of devotion, they're all acts of rebellion until you have come before the Father through Christ the Son. The first thing you've got to do to be faithful at all is to submit to the Father through faith in the Son. That's the deal. Having done that, guys, the next thing is not your your worship and your ministry to people outside. It's to draw near to the Father and the Son by the Holy Spirit, God's Word, and prayer. God God works on us from the inside out. Like Julie was talking uh, this morning about, you go and serve someone else and you realize... God's changing me. You know, you become a spouse. To, you get married and you realize, I see all the sin in me. I'm, I'm, I'm here to make my spouse holier and I realize God's working on me. Or I get kids and I realize now how selfish I was and I think I'm here to lead my kids and I am, but I see God's showing all the sin in me. Uh, faithfulness begins in that relationship with God. So we want to draw near to God because we're in His Word every day, because we're praying every day. That's what Elijah did, wasn't it? He poured his heart out to God. When we do that, we can hear God telling us, this is what I've got for you today. God gives us impulses and thoughts, but it's only because we're drawing near to Him. He doesn't need us, we mentioned last time, to do His work. He's glad to include us because we're His kids. He's got things He wants us to do. But the first thing you and I do having come to faith in Christ is we draw near to God through Christ in the Scriptures and in prayer. It's then that we start going out and God's glad to use us with others. And again, the work is always in us as much as it is in them. So so have we done those things? Is that what we're doing? 
And then out of that relationship, our hearts tune to God. Then we start serving others. What responsibilities are those that we have? Now, kids, you know, if you're a little kid, you've got responsibilities, right? Because God speaks to little kids, doesn't he? What? (laughs) One of my favorite notions. What does God tell little children to do? Obey Obey your parents. (laughs) Obey your parents, (laughs) right? (laughs) Respect your parents. Kids, how's that going? (laughs) Scripture says, you know, you can tell a kid, even a kid, (laughs) by what he does. You know, where's your heart? Kids, are you obeying? If you're a student, you're supposed to be a student for Christ. That means your work as a student is meant to glorify and honor Christ and the Father. It's not just that I'm going to school. I'm God's student. Or if I'm a parent or a spouse or my place of employment or I'm an employer. All of those are the places in which the faithfulness God wants to be part of us through Christ and the zeal sometimes of Christ is meant to bear. It's in all of those areas of relationship and responsibility we have. So even if you say I'm a quiet person like Elisha was, we still need some zeal, some fire in the belly, some determination at times especially to say I won't be put off. I need something so that I can fulfill God's mission in my life, so that I can honor the Father and honor the Son. It's not about me. It's about being faithful to God and to God's call. Okay. With that, would you stand? And we're going to read from... This is another Messianic passage out of Isaiah 50. We're not saying we're the Messiah, but some of the thoughts here apply for sure. The worship team will come up and we'll sing from here. But read with me if you will. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty?